Part One, Chapters Seven and Eight of *The Power of a Lie* by Johann Boya, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. Down by the fjord lay a little one-storied house, half hidden by large trees within a garden. Here lived Fru Thora Skard, the widow of the inspector of forests. Upon the death of her husband she had withdrawn from the social life to which she was accustomed, and henceforth lived quietly behind her flowers in her pretty little rooms. On rare occasions she might be seen going out to some sick or poor person with a book and a basket. Although she was more than forty, she was still young in mind. It was she who had started the young people's club in the parish. Any young peasant girl who wished it was certain of obtaining from her free instruction in everything national. She had her little house, after her husband's death, renamed and registered as Lidarenda, and from that time forward she liked to be called Thora of Lidarenda. When she heard the news about Wangen she thought, Poor wife! Poor children! She knew Fru Wangen very well, and she was so upset about this that she could think of nothing else. Although she had only a small pension, and was trying, moreover, to put something by for Gunnar, her kind heart said over and over again, I must go and help them. Three children, the parents destitute, and then this crime. It would be wrong of me not to go. There were such different opinions about Wangen's guilt and innocence. Fru Thora was sufficiently well acquainted with her fellow-creatures to know that most of them believed Wangen to be guilty, because he had already gone down in the world. She wanted to form her own opinion about the matter, uninfluenced by others, and therefore meditated deeply upon the matter, reasoning from her knowledge of the two men, for one of them must be in the wrong. It happened that Norby realized in himself and his belongings some of the ideals that Fru Thora of Liderenda cherished. She had always thought there was something particularly Norwegian about Norby. The broad, strongly built farmer, living in his large house and ruling over his laborers, was like a direct descendant of the old kings. In the storehouse at Norby she knew there lay a quantity of old harness, drinking-bowls, sledges, and carved household articles, and she had speculated as to how to get hold of them for a country museum. Without her noticing it, or being able to prevent it, the impression from these things entered into her valuation of Norby in this particular case. And Wangen? He was the son of that magistrate, who was noted for his animosity towards the peasant and yet was not too refined himself to misappropriate public money. And now, whenever Fru Thora thought of the son, it was as though the atmosphere of the father surrounded him. Norby and Wangen opposing one another? Could there be any doubt in such a case? It was thus that Thora of Liderende's opinion on this matter was formed, and when once it was there she felt no doubt at all about the matter, omitting to inquire into the origin of the opinion. She did not, however, grow to dislike or scorn Wangen on account of this crime. On the contrary, she felt it was just now he was to be pitied. Just now he needed help. "'You must not shirk your duty,' her kind heart said to her every day, and she had no peace until she had made up her mind to offer to take one of the children." 
She wanted, moreover, to set the parish an example in not condemning too severely one who has given way to temptation, and on the day when she fought her way in a snowstorm along the fjord to call on Fru Wangen, she felt light-hearted, notwithstanding the cold and wind, in the thought that even this sad affair could afford her an opportunity of doing good. When she reached the Wangens' house, she was told by the maid that her mistress had been confined, but as this was the fifth day, Fru Thora was allowed to go in to her. Fru Thora could scarcely restrain her tears at sight of this unfortunate woman, who had thrown herself away upon such a man. And when she bent over the bed, and Fru Wangen threw her arms about her neck, they both sobbed aloud. They talked together for a long time, before Fru Thora broached the subject of her errand. But although she chose her words carefully, Fru Wangen seemed offended, and curtly declined her offer. And when Fru Thora went away, she had an unhappy feeling of having done something utterly wrong. When she was gone, Wangen went in to his wife, and when he had heard of Fru Thora's errand, stood silent with a peculiar smile upon his face. "'Oh, indeed!' he said at last. "'They're beginning to want to take our children from us too now, are they?' "'But, Henry, don't you really think she meant it kindly?' He laughed. "'Yes, of course. Why, they mean everything kindly.' A little while after, he said, "'I suppose they understand that as long as I have my family about me, I have a kind of backbone. But,' he continued, going up to the window, "'that she, too—' He stood watching the energetic little woman struggling down the road against a wind that almost blew her away. He could really see now that her errand had been one of which she was ashamed. But she had come to the house trying to coax his wife to give up the child when he was not there, and when the mother lay helpless in bed. He suddenly clenched his hands in fierce anger as he looked after her. How she struggled against the wind! How her shawl fluttered! A shiver ran down his back as it struck him that she resembled a bat, and he thought of witches. "'Henry!' came from the bed, and when he turned, his wife stretched out her arms towards him. He bent down, and when he felt her arms about his neck, sank upon his knees. "'Henry!' she said, stroking the back of his head. "'Henry, you mustn't think that any of us will forsake you.' He could not answer but took her head between his hands and kissed her forehead. "'Poor Henry,' she said again. "'I never thought people could be so unkind.' When at last he rose, he said in a kind of exalted indignation, "'I'll pay them out for this.'" Part One, Chapter Eight Mads Herlufsen, in the meantime, sat for hours together looking across at Norby. In his eyes, Norby Farm was a kind of fox's den, away there under the fur-clad slope, upon which he must keep watch to see what Reynard was doing. At the approach of crises in the forest prices, and of political elections, it was always against Norby that Mads Herlufsen directed his moves. When he won, he slapped his thigh, and was in good spirits for more than a week. If Norby were successful, he was as ashamed as if he had done something wrong himself. But although these two little kings thought of nothing but doing one another harm, at the same time they were good friends when they met, 
They warred upon one another chiefly because there was no other worthy opponent within a wide area. Mods Herlufsen now sat pursing up his mouth, looking across at Norby and wondering. What does he mean by this? he thought, for he was always accustomed to think this when Norby did anything. It certainly isn't that he wants to quarrel with Wangen, nor is it for the sake of the money. There must be something behind. At last he discovered that Norby wanted to get Wangen punished in order to frustrate his competition and thus force the brickfields under the hammer. It was the brickfields that Reynard wanted to get hold of this time. For a little time Mads Herlufsen sat rubbing his nose in disappointment at not being able to think of a counter-move. He did not care in the least whether Wangen were guilty or not. His only care was for Norby. Do I want the brickfields? Bless me, no. But why should Norby have them? At last a thought struck him. One of his farm labourers, Soren Kickne, had once been in the employ of the deceased witness, Jürgen Harstad. Wangen had no witnesses now that Harstad was dead. Suppose Soren Kickne could be utilised. He remembered what an honest man Soren Kickne had always been, so he took out a bottle of brandy and sent over to the men's quarters for him, for the men were in at dinner. It was not a customary thing for the men to be called into the sitting-room of the farm, and when Soren Kickne went in he looked about cautiously to see where he should sit, and scarcely dared to seat himself upon the beautiful chair. But Herlufsen gave him a long pipe to smoke, and placed him on the sofa opposite himself and after filling his glass two or three times, said to him, "'Weren't you once in the employment of Harstad, Soren?' Soren Kickne fingered his thin beard, and gazed in front of him with a melancholy stare. "'Oh, yes, he was,' he answered. "'You can't remember, I suppose, whether Harstad ever mentioned anything about having signed his name as a witness for Wangen and Norby?' Soren Kickne shook his head. He could not remember it at all. "'Well, well,' said Herlufsen, "'you must think a little, Soren.' Soren thought a little, but no, no. "'For it's possible that the whole thing may depend upon you,' said Herlufsen. The man looked askance at his master, but Herlufsen was perfectly serious, and when he went away told him to remember that the whole matter now depended upon him. When Soren Kickne went back to the men's room, he stood in the middle of the floor, and asked in a loud voice whether any of the others had ever been in the farm parlour and drunk a dram and smoked a long pipe with the master. At this there was a roar of laughter, whereupon Soren grew angry, and let them know that the whole matter between Wangen and Norby now depended upon him. "'Upon you?' exclaimed several voices and some, who were reclining on the benches, sat up and looked curiously at him. "'Yes, upon me,' said Soren, nodding his head. But there was nothing more to be got out of him. He was not a man to let his tongue run away with him. From that day he had no peace either day or night. Whenever he met his master, he was urged on with, "'Haven't you considered that matter yet?' It was quite true he had been in Harstad's service five years, and it was quite true that Harstad and he had often talked together alone. But, but, 
He scratched his ear a great many times a day. He talked to his wife about the matter, and his wife too said he must think a little. And Soren did think a little. He thought both day and night, since the whole matter now depended upon him. It couldn't be that time Harstad and he... No, no, it wasn't then. No, if it was any time, then... then it must have been when they were painting the carriole together. Harstad was painting the shafts, and he was doing the wheels and the body. They were standing in the sun behind the barn, and this scene, in which they painted the carriole, fastened itself little by little in Sören's mind, until he gradually became certain that if there positively was a time when Harstad confided the matter to him, it must have been then, and when he came to think of it, it certainly was on that occasion. When he told Herlufsen one day that he had thought the matter over, he could not understand why his master became so exceedingly affable. Herlufsen told him he might take a holiday for the rest of the day. He might go down to Wangen and ask to be called as a witness. End of Part 1 Chapters 7 and 8